1: Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 72nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is David DeVoe. Dave is the founder of DeVoe & Company, a practice management consulting firm for RAs with a focus on business valuation succession planning and facilitating mergers and acquisitions of advisory firms. What's unique about Dave, though, is the deep history that he has in consulting on and tracking the trends of advisory firm mergers and acquisitions and, and the value of firms themselves, both previously at Charles Schwab, where he led Schwab Advisor Services' mergers and acquisitions program, and now as an independent consultant who runs one of the industry's leading deal book tracking studies on financial advisor M&A activity. In this episode, we talk in depth about current trends in the valuation of advisory firms, the the flaws in the traditional two times revenue valuation estimate for a firm, and and, why it can actually vary as low as one times revenue or as high as nearly 3x, why focusing on profits and a multiple of free cash flow actually leads to better valuations than looking at multiples of revenue alone, the growth, profitability, and risk factors that impact the valuation multiple for an advisory firm, and how in the end, an advisory firm is still, like any business, ultimately priced based on the present value of future cash flows, and thus why Dave's firm takes a discounted cash flow model approach to providing accurate advisory firm valuations. We also talk about the mechanics of advisory firm deals from the buyer's perspective, why deals were historically transacted primarily with seller financing, how the rise of third-party bank financing is changing the actual terms and even the valuations of firms, and why arguably the most important factor in determining the affordability of a purchase is not actually the price of the firm itself or, or the interest rate charged on the note, but the number of years over which the payments are financed that determines whether the buyer has some skin in the game or if the profits of the firm can actually fully finance the purchase with no ongoing out-of-pocket cash. And be certain to listen to the end, where Dave shares his perspective on the buyer and seller trends in the industry, why he sees it as both a buyer's market and a seller's market right now, and why he thinks the greatest risk to valuations is the danger that too many advisory firms try to sell at once. Not because there isn't enough capital to fund all the purchases at current prices, but simply because there are still too few buyers for them all to be able to collectively handle the operational challenges of just implementing so many mergers and acquisitions at once. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Dave DeVoe. Welcome, Dave DeVoe, to the Financial Advisor Success
2: Podcast. Michael, it's good to be here.
1: I've been looking forward to this episode for a while because you you live in this to me is a, a very interesting space of mergers and acquisitions and advisory firms buying other advisory firms and it's kind of becoming the hot trend in the industry these days particularly in the in the RIA space but I feel like it's a huge challenge for most of us to think about this as advisors because the entire process of what it takes to go through a transaction of selling your firm, most of us will only ever do once at the end. We built the thing that we're ready to sell, making probably the largest financial decision of our lives, having absolutely no experience in doing it, unless like we happen to have clients who bought and sold businesses and maybe had some experience or familiarity with it. And so I'm 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 looking forward today just talking through like this world of advisory firm mergers and acquisitions and valuations and investment banking, just like how all this works. So hopefully like everyone listening understands just a little more of what, what goes on in this world where we just talk about M and A mergers and acquisitions as a as a thing that you know I just don't tend to experience un- until you're in the thick of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh it's great running this business, I think. It's a lot of fun. It's got a mix of of uh, both analytical and quantitative, but it also has a big emotional component. I mean, people are are quite literally making some of the most important business decisions of their career. So to be part of that is um, it's really rewarding, you know, to to make these things work out well. So it's it's been a lot of fun.
1: So as we get started, like wanting as a starting point, you just tell us a little bit about. DeVoe and company, like your business, what do you guys do?
2: Yeah, yeah. So we really do three things. We do consulting, we do investment banking, and we do valuation work, all exclusively for the RAA space. So I'll define those a little further. So consulting, momentarily, I can talk about the team, but, but but we have a really unique team. And literally half the team has sat in the chair of our clients. They've run... Either as COO, president, or CEO, billion dollar plus REAs. And that experience, plus the other half is a couple of ex McKinsey folks, that experience really puts us in a position to help advisors with any strategic decision that they need to make. You know, human capital, succession planning, incentive compensation, strategic planning, growth, fee increases, fee decreases, quite literally any strategic discussion or decision that an advisor needs to make, we can help them with, you know, we're, we're not, we don't get into hyper technology decisions. We don't get into, you know, hyper detailed operation decisions, but the strategic elements, uh, we're, we're really good at. So that's the consulting side of the equation, which is different from investment banking, you know, helping firms buy, sell, or merge a core component of the business. And then the third component valuation is, um, kind of a, a pet project for me. you know. Uh, I sat in a chair at Schwab for, for eight and a half years and, and saw valuations done in a way that I, I think I thought about differently. So when we launched the company, we took a very nerdy approach, scientific approach to valuation. And uh, we've, we've, we have a lot of passion about making sure that we're, we're crafting the right numbers. So that's an entire business line for us. It's not a loss leader. That's a, a line of business for us. Okay.
1: So I'd love to dig into each of these a little bit Further, so let me start with with the consulting end. So, I, I guess a starting point, like who, when you're doing these consulting conversations of you know, fee increases, decreases, human capital, these things, like what what's a typical profile of a firm that you're working with in the first place? Just so we have a little concept, of, a context of like we're thinking about this consulting, like who's the firm on the other side of the table? Is that like a a hundred million dollar RIA, a billion dollar RIA, smaller, larger? Like, who are you consulting with?
2: Yeah, yeah. So you're spot on, it's RAAs. It's the vast majority of our business. You know, sometimes we'll have hybrids, et cetera, but it's truly, you know, the the wealth managers that, that you and I work with every day. And the size ranges. Our smallest client has had $40 million, I guess you could say even a de novo startup. Our largest client has had probably $60 billion or more. One is coming to mind. You know, the this, this sweet spot is probably a couple hundred million to a couple billion. When I started this company, I thought, okay, you know, clearly a business consultant. I'm all about helping clients think about segmentation and, and being very focused. And I, I, I thought about that. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to go into the marketplace with very transparent fees. And, you know, firms will will pay if that makes sense to them. I'm, I'm not going to jack it up for the big ones. I'm not going to create, you know, really tight or or sort of throwaway work for really small ones. So what we find is, um, you know, we put out into the marketplace what we're doing and, and both large and small will hire us.
1: So what kinds of, I mean, you mentioned a few areas like fee increases, decreases human capital, but just as someone that's doing it, like what are the... What are the hot strategic issues that you're seeing come up for advisory firms these days?
2: Yeah, yeah, there's a number of them. So, you know, uh, succession planning has been a a big component uh, since we launched for six years. You know, clearly some of the trends are pointing in that direction. So, a lot of succession planning from day one. The last probably three years, we've done a lot of strategic work. Clients are coming to us saying, Hey, you know, we have built this platform, we have a solid machine here, it could be, you know, 400 million or 800 million, sometimes it's a billion or more. And they say, okay, we've gotten to this point. But now we have all these different options, you know, I, I call them shiny objects, and they're almost overwhelmed by, you know, they can grow the business faster, they can enter this new market. They can create this ancillary business or go after this new segment of, of clients. They could acquire, they can merge, they can sell, you know, and they, they almost get overwhelmed. So we, we've done enough of this business that we've created a methodical approach to really starting with our goals, thinking, really creating criteria out of that, then identify an option set and methodically collaborating with them to determine which elements need to be removed and which ones they should really focus on and ultimately arrive at a focus. So that strategic work um, has really gained uh, a lot of momentum over the last couple of years. Recently, we've done a lot of work on the human capital side, incentive compensation in particular, which I'm just fascinated by. I love incentive comp. And uh, more recently, a lot of governance work, especially once a firm hits about a billion dollars they start having more shareholders it's not just one person or two partners making the decisions it's methodically thinking through how decisions are being made with you know five 10 even 25 different uh, shareholders so it ebbs and flows a little bit but those are those are some of the overall trends and some of some of the hotter pieces that we're working on
1: so I'm kind of fascinated with the the governance piece in particular is as kind of an, an issue I'm seeing cropping up more as firms just get larger and get multi-partner. Like a lot of firms get founded by either one person or maybe two people, uh or occasionally three, kind of they they band together. We're the advisors, we go out getting the clients and you get clients, you hire some staff, you get more clients, you hire a few more staff, you hire maybe some associate planners, you start handing off the clients, so you got room to get more clients and 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 you can grow the firm for quite a while that way. But eventually you want to introduce some additional partners, the ownership spreads out a little bit, and then all of a sudden these like very challenging real world questions start coming up like so does everyone who's a partner sit at the table when we make business decisions like in theory, a lot of people say well i want I want to buy in and be a partner so that I can be part of the decision making process." But if you do that with a lot of advisors and not a lot of partners, eventually you're just making 15-person executive committee decisions. That means nothing's getting done at that point because there's too many people in the room. So, Mm. how do you see firms dealing with this? Like, what kinds of, I guess, governance structures do firms start putting in place as they get large?
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Each firm's a little different, um, but we start to see certain themes. One of those themes is, gee, you know what, Devonco, come in here and, and help us put an equity plan in place. We want we want every employee to be behaving like a shareholder. Matter of fact, we want, you know, people watching the paper clips. They want we want everyone to be behaving in that way. And, you know, we're good soldiers. We, we work with our clients. Oftentimes, we'll share our perspective, pros, cons, and implications of different ways to proceed. And in this circumstance, we're often sort of saying, okay, we're, we're happy to craft something like that. But let's, let's think about that. And is that really the best path forward? And is that going to achieve your goals? So, for instance, oftentimes, you know, an administrative assistant or, you know, a junior operations person, giving them a couple shares of stock which frankly they don't even understand it's this illiquid theoretical construct that they have you know that could be worth thousands of thousands of dollars but they don't get it and frankly they'd be happier with a couple hundred dollar bonus instead of that so instead sometimes we're we're helping our clients think through okay you know l- let's talk about it what do you seek to achieve here and are, are people actually going to change their behavior patterns simply because they're a shareholder or are there better ways to change their their behavior patterns. Oftentimes we'll, we'll start getting into um, it's somewhat philosophical, but it's, it's important in many cases, you know, are, are we talking here about shareholders or are we talking about partners and how do we define that? Is this a process where we're rewarding based on success to date? Or we're giving shares out because of either fear—we we fear that they're going to leave, or aspiration—we expect that they will f- they will come into this role. So all of this is are are some of the pieces that we'll work through in this equation to determine you know what shareholder that shareholder plan should look like. Now, once people become shareholders, it gets into the governance questions that you raised. And there's a few components to it. You know, sometimes we see firms that say, hey, I only want to do a transaction if I'm going to be 51% shareholder because I want to call the shots. I don't want to give up control. Well, there's different ways to skin that cat. You could be a minority shareholder and actually have decision-making control over certain things. Many decisions actually shouldn't be 51%. Maybe they should be 66 or 80%. You know, Some of these decisions maybe shouldn't be based on The number of shares that you have, but maybe one vote per shareholder. So, the governance work that
1: I got to ask, just yeah, yeah, go ahead. You put a piece out there that I, I think would pique at least some people's curiosity. Like how do how do I keep control of decisions if I don't own the majority of my firm?
2: Yeah, well, there's a few layers. One is, do you need to control everything? You know, which is an important question for people to reflect on. And part of this is related to oneself. Sure, we'd all love to control everything. But we also, you know, realize that other people are going to want control as well. We also realize that diversity of thought and even um, a situation where you don't have full control, maybe even that discipline of having to sell your concept to other people can be really powerful. But we're also very respectful that, you know... It's not invalid to want full control. And if that's the case, you know, let's let's structure things in that particular format. Part of our job too, Michael, you can imagine is, hey, what what's the current situation? What do you seek to achieve currently? And then also, how might that evolve over time? Because someone who wants full control today, but they also want to bring on successors, they want to start to create that path to migrate ownership, leadership, management, all these critically important things... You know, that that paradigm is probably going to have to shift over time. So, you know, we joke we're therapists with spreadsheets and therapists with frameworks. <laughs> and this is one of those things where it's not just, hey, Devon Company, come in here, drop your framework down, let's fill in some numbers. Oftentimes we're literally having conversations about, you know, people's fears and aspirations and what they seek to achieve to, today and down the road. And that's part of our job. And
1: so, what kinds of changes end up getting made when you go down this this road uh like i'm just trying to envision what is a again like just what does what a governance structure look like like i know how to i know how to own my firm and call the shots that's how most of us start if we're if we're building a firm like when when it's not that what does it look like
2: yeah, what does it look like? So, part of a part of what we'll start with is talking through okay, let's start identifying what control means and essentially that manifests itself in certain decisions. So there might be a dozen, maybe there's probably even 25 different decisions that typically might rise to the level of management or or I should say ownership.
1: Is it like senior hiring decisions, how we price our services, launching new service lines, like things like that?
2: Absolutely. You're spot on. So, you know, do you want it to be what what sort of copier paper you use or what sort of copier you buy? Absolutely not. You know, by contrast, do we want to acquire a firm or do we want to enter this new line of business? Do we want to change the name of the firm? Those are, are some of the critical things, you know, hiring people at this level, not that level. So, you know, we'll often start by saying, you know, do you have anything in mind that that you want to have as part of that, those governance decisions? And then we'll also get into, hey, here's a laundry list, you know, tell us what's important to you. So that process is going through and and sometimes there's more complexity. Do you need a board that makes a separate set of decisions or just shareholders? You know, OK, where does the management team fit in here? You know, the CEO or president, do they have certain decisions that they're going to influence. But Reader's Digest, it's it's a process of determining what those decisions are and then how those decisions are going to be made. And part of that too is you know not just what's the control for that given individual, but how do you really create, in some cases, the, the power beh- behind coming a shareholder? Is it just getting a check or is it actually having some decision-making power in the organization? And what does that look like?
1: I feel like that would become an issue for a lot of next generation advisors coming in where, where so often the focus on equity is all about like I, I want a seat at the table. I hear that a lot from advisors. So like I want a seat at the table. Except what you're basically saying is and then you and then you add the owners and then you have to have them not have seats at the table.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mean in in circumstances where they're shareholders, but they don't have any decision making power? Yeah. Or they're not.
1: I mean, is that is that common? And, and how do you not create embittered next generation advisors? who are like finally get to be a partner, still not getting to contribute to the decisions.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it's common when we start talking to firms, and then it's going to depend. And we have. You know, oftentimes, you know, principals, they're running a business, they have their lives, they're busy with these things, and they haven't spent a lot of time thinking about governance and decision making. So our job is to create a nice, elegant, efficient way for them to think through that. And in many cases, they shift and they say, wow, okay, yeah, I, I do see that these folks should have some decision making power. A matter of fact, part of me being a leader and a coach to them is, is having them, you know, sit at the decision making table and being at a minimum exposed to it. In some cases, having a degree of influence, and in other cases, having just as much influence as me you know, one vote per shareholder, um, and they can see some value and power in doing so. You know, quite frankly, in other cases, firms say, "You know what? I still want full control, and I either don't want to have them having decision-making power, or I want structures in, in place so that I can still control the outcomes of certain things. And that's OK. You know, we're, we're not here to judge. We're not here to tell people how things should be done. We're here to, to understand what they seek to achieve and then enable them to craft that uh, structure, but also ensure that they have full knowledge of the downstream implications of that. And in a particular organization like that, again, it's, it's not the end of the world. Oftentimes, you know, it's, it's folks that are signing up saying, OK, I'm a shareholder. I'm going to get my quarterly check. But I'm not going to have decision making power at this time. And that's, you know, and that's still a great work environment for them to be in.
1: Now, you said you're doing a lot of succession planning work as well. I, w- I would presume, in the, I guess this depends on firm size, but as I usually think about succession planning, which is, you know, advisor has business, decides they don't want to run business anymore, wants to get to re- ready to retire in a couple of years, go and find a successor to do succession planning. I I presume the contr- kind of the control transition issues look very different in in succession plans because we're in theory trying to transition ownership and control as opposed to like expanding ownership but retaining control.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Succession planning, it's such a vast topic, you know, and it takes so many different elements depending on. It. We, there's literally 30 different modules that can be part of a succession plan. And, you know, firm A might want might want to tackle 21 of those. Firm B might want to tackle three of them. You know, hey, valuation deal structure, I'm good. That's all I need right now. So it, it really depends on, on the organization. I mean, the good news is I've been doing this now, REA, M&A, for 16 years. And when I started in this business, a lot of the succession plans were, you know, when someone was a year or two years away from retiring. I mean, it was, it was actually kind of weird. I'd you know, I was working for Schwab at the time and I got on the road. I was I was starting to launch this uh their their transition planning platform. So, you know, I went out and I started talking to a lot of advisors and uh, learning from them. And and I'd go and meet with these folks and i walk through their office. And as we're walking through, they're waxing on about not only their employees, but gee, you know, clients just love us and we love our clients. And, and quite literally, Dave, I mean, these people depend on us. Um, we provide so much value and and they talk about just this glorious relationship. And that, then, you know, by then we'd get into their office and we'd close the door. And after a couple minutes, I'd say, hey, you know, I'm trying to craft this program. Um, what's your succession plan? And they'd say... You know, Dave, they're they're gonna ca- carry me out of here in a box. I'm gonna die with my boots on. I was like, wait, three minutes ago, you were talking about how your clients depend on you, they love you, how grateful you are for this life that that they've helped you create, and 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 suddenly they're gonna get, you know, I actually literally imagined my cute little old grandma before she died. You know, this little old lady getting something in the mail saying, hey, your advisor died. You're on your own. Go grab a phone book and figure out who you're going to use. You know, it's just a huge disconnect. So, the, the good news is I hear a lot less of that these days. And when I do hear it, you know, I, I delicately and diplomatically talk about the impact that that can have on their clients, which oftentimes are, you know, in their 70s or 80s or even older. So, I think that that's, and by the way, fiduciary is a whole other topic. That doesn't sound very fiduciary to me. So, the good news is I think the needle has moved. Unfortunately, you and I know there's not nearly as many succession plans as we should see in the marketplace. But more and more of these advisors are doing the right thing and and doing it earlier um, for a whole variety of reasons.
1: And so what is the like what does a typical succession plan deal structure look like at this point? You know, if they if they want if they're doing this a little bit further ahead, I know like when we're when we're getting in the home stretch and it's just like, hey, hey I gotta get I I gotta sell my business the next year, it's it's mostly about just Let's get the terms of the transfer done. But for these more gradual succession plans that I'm I seeing coming up more often, like what, what do these deals look like? How does this come together?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of things. I mean, almost like a cheat sheet. Because I think advisors should, as soon as you get started, you know, the machine is running, the canoe is not going to sink, right? You're you're pushed away from the shore. You know, literally just start thinking through some succession planning. Like if I get hit by a bus, what's going to happen? So, and you know, I've had folks who asked me to speak, create little slides on it. So, you know, as soon as you get started, just start with taking care of your family and your heirs, you know, put insurance in place. The next thing is, is to, Probably have a, a buy sell agreement with another organization gee you know i 'm forty years old or thirty five i 'm not i don 't plan to get hit by a bus, but if i do here 's a firm that shares my investment philosophy, they share my client service philosophy, and they do a pretty good job with my clients so let 's let 's rough something out let 's have a buy sell agreement where if i 'm hit by a bus, they take over the client relationships and then start moving into okay let 's look around do we have potential next gen in place you know do we have a path and and that gets to what you're talking about now which is how do you start grooming people how do you you know determine what the valuation of the firm is start to migrate equity over to them and you know i'm happy to to talk through some rough terms on that one of the things that we are seeing a challenge with and this is another area that we're doing a lot of strat- strategic work is to crunch the math in terms of if a firm is hitting an inflection point where the firm's getting too expensive for the next gen, right? So when you first start the firm, you want to have some sort of succession plan in place. Once you get big enough, it becomes a challenge, if not impossible, for the next gen to be able to afford the firm. So starting to do that math and think through, okay, what's the value of the firm today and the future? And where
1: does that, where does that size inflection point tend to come where, where it, it becomes an issue for the next generation to buy the firm?
2: Yeah, yeah. I'd say, you know, leading up to 100 million, generally, there's not a successor in-house, you know, so they haven't hired someone that has those capabilities to run the company right around 100, and maybe it's 80 or 120, depends on the firm. You know, you hire one or multiple people that that could help, that could actually run the firm if you get hit by a bus or or at the appropriate time. Once you hit maybe two three 300 million, it starts to get a little gray once you hit, you know, three, 400 million, it can start to become a challenge to sell the firm internally. It's going to depend on a lot of factors. You know, if you're 20 years away from retirement and you're starting the process, great. If you're three wh- years away from retirement and you have a $400 million firm, it might be impossible to get to the right, you know, to get a fair undiscounted valuation. So once you hit, I'd say, um, Michael, I'd say maybe 300 to a billion, you know, it's worth... Taking out Excel, crunching some numbers, or you know, hiring us—we're nerds about it. So we have a ten thousand cell model to literally, you know, because it gets complicated pretty quickly. You're you're saying, okay, what's my firm worth today? And each year, it should be worth more. And then, how much am I going to sell? You know, this year, a couple years from now, and gee, Lisa is a partner too. When does she sell? And you start thinking through when the sales are going to occur. And you look around at who's, who's going to buy in and how much money they have sitting around. And the other thing too, which is fascinating, is sometimes when people do this, they make assumptions that may not come to fruition. So this is not an uncommon one. You might have heard this. I'm just going to sell 10% a year to person X. And this will work out. Well, about three years in, that person and their spouse are like, wow, we're putting every single dollar into this company. Maybe we want to put a pool in the backyard. I think we're going to skip a year or two here. Matter of fact, we might even be done. And suddenly, that whole 10% a year plan is upside down. The other thing too is, is we've seen anecdotally enough now that about 25% of the time you offer equity to someone, or let's say 25% of the people you offer equity to will actually reject it. So suddenly you got a big hole in your plan, and probably a lot of emotional turmoil because you're offended. But yeah, some of these calculations. Uh, Why
1: do people turn it down? I feel like they you know, for so much of the discussion that's like the 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 thing advisors are working towards. When you come in, particularly when you come in as a, like a junior associate planner, like I want to work up to the point where I can be a partner, maybe someday by the firm, and then they decline when you get there. So like, what's the yeah? What causes declines?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Careful what you ask for. Now there, there's a variety of factors, and we've we've done this enough now that as we start to move toward, you know, we'll be working on a succession plan. Where we're like, okay, great, you're going to offer these four folks, you know, and you got the the elegant deal structure set up, and all this partnership criteria. I mean, that's another thing is that whole process of of partnership and eligibility and all that. That's that's a bunch of work we do too. But we now warn people before they're about to have that discussion with their staff we tell them hey heads up about 25% of the time this doesn't work out and you know you are probably going to have a visceral reaction like anger or frustration if you get a no and you know and be careful be aware of that and let's talk through it after the fact because in some cases it's just life is complicated and these people have economic challenges that you weren't aware of, or economic priorities that are more important than investing in the firm. Like, what? like
1: they, you know, I wanted to, I just, I wanted to go buy a house, start a family, like those kinds of things. I guess I can envision that. Just sort of the age demographic of who's buying at the time.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's part of the equation, but oftentimes the owners of the company will already kind of know that about their people, right? Instead, it's more of they have an ailing parent, and they've started to crunch the math and say, "Wow, you know what? We're going to be ha- we're going to have to take care of this parent." And sometimes that's doing the calculation of we're going to be flying to this city, you know, once every two months, and suddenly it's going to. This so that can be part of the the challenge. It could be you know people have done their own financial planning, and in this particular case, they're not ready. In some cases, and and some of these things are are you know outside the scope. They just part of it's economic part of and this is where it moves from, hey, it's okay, and maybe it's a short term issue, to hey, maybe you do need to consider this person and whether their partnership pr- criteria. Because sometimes if someone says no, that can be the first step in a parting of ways with that party. And it doesn't have to be, but it can be. And sometimes we want to mitigate that if, it, if it's not going to occur. So it, oftentimes, the other the other reasons that we see are these people are not wired to be entrepreneurs. You know, you're an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur, all the clients that we work with, these people are wired to be entrepreneurs. We start to assume that everyone has a similar psychological makeup up. As us, and it 's a very small part of the population that does so oftentimes you know for someone to bet their life savings on this business or set into that seat that that can be intimidating for them in other cases, you know in some cases they they actually don't think the the firm is worth their investment, they think, hey, I either don't understand valuation." Or I don't. I'm not connecting these dots, and they're not comfortable. I mean, that's a whole other topic to topic talk about. But those are all sort of the the different components that that often drive this uh, this delay or decision not to invest.
1: So, can we delve in that a little? Just like the world of valuation, and and maybe like how? Just well, I guess this is true on the seller's end as well as the buyers. But I'm thinking particularly for the for the buyer who's never bought into a practice, maybe even has never really. Crunch the math and thought through how all this works. Like how do you talk through valuation and how to understand it and how to think about the buy-in for a, a prospective junior partner who's thinking about buy-in and you're, you've ended out this valuation table.
2: Yeah. 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 So, you know, we're, we're very passionate about valuation and you know i can nerd out momentarily we have like a 30,000 cell discounted cash flow model it's not only a powerful tool to understand the valuation but a diagnostic for the firm it's it's like an elegant work of art for nerds like you and me i mean it's just cool it's awesome and part of that passion is like just nerdiness but part of that passion is because this stuff is important we're talking when we're valuing a firm. Usually, money's changing hands, and we're talking about junior people quite literally li- risking their life savings. You know, in other cases, the, the partners too—they're—they're they're monetizing their baby, something they've nurtured. You know, from a concept into what it is today, and the retirement can be part of this too. You know, and and the viability of the retirement—that's—that's that's critically important too. But you know, clearly on that other side, people are risking their life savings, and that's why we're so passionate about it. You know, to take. Two times revenue, or you know five times cash flow, we're using math my 13 year old son could do in his head a couple years ago to value a firm where you know life savings are taking place. It's just for me it's just irresponsible and wrong. So that's why we're so passionate and we really try to understand that organization and, and get to the right number. So a few things you know when folks are hiring us to come in and do evaluation like this, one is that can give the next gen a much greater degree of comfort. You know, in two layers, they're, let's assume they're not involved in that process. It doesn't take too much Google or chat with too many people to say, okay, you know. DeVoe Company or Dave DeVoe these this isn't a fly by night operation or whatever else. Like these guys get it. So that can increase the the comfort level. But oftentimes our, our clients will will have their next gen come along in those conversations. So the way we do valuation, you know, some firms is like a brick over the wall. Hey, give us a bunch of information. You know, we're gonna spit out a valuation. Thank you very much. You know, we are gonna be having three to six conversations with the client. They're engaged. We're talking about the business. What's the history? Hey, you had the spike here, you know, you had this turnover there. Looking into the future, what's going to happen with this? Oh, you say you don't need to, to hire new people over the next 5 years. Well, your advisor to client ratio is going from, you know, 78 to 115 and up front you said your target was 65. Like we have a problem, we need to have. So we're literally going through with that advisor and thinking through, because we're projecting what's going to happen with this company, sharing our expertise, marrying that with their intimate knowledge of their business and what's going to be happening. So if their um, next gen is coming along in these conversations, which oftentimes they are, they're not only seeing the nuts and bolts and, and you know gaining a very high degree of confidence. Okay, this is truly why the firm is valued this way. They get it. They understand it. But it can be really powerful too because if this is going to be your next gen they're seeing how to run this company. They're seeing different ratios. They're seeing there's a leaky bucket here and we got to close that gap. And man alive, we're doing this better than anyone else in the business. We need to do more of this and do it better. So, and here's how the economics work. So it can be a really powerful process to have these folks uh, ride along through that experience.
1: So can you walk us through a little bit more of just how the economics work? Like, I don't know, maybe it... uh... We can pick like a, a hypothetical two hundred million dollar assets under management firm and just kind of walk through like how does this how would the valuation come together what are some of the factors and like what what would a a deal end out looking like for a two hundred million dollar firm
2: yeah yeah, so and i'll I'll start with sort of the two hundred million dollar firm you know a few approaches one one might say, okay. Um, let's start with the revenue, the two times or 2.3 times revenue. So, you know, I think you and I would agree that that would be wrong. a matter of fact, it's funny when I started in this business 15, 16 years ago, it was like two times revenue. There's, one, there's a firm that's done a great job marketing like this into the psyche of people where let's take a very complex problem and make it very simple. Two times this number is great. And the funny thing is the number is actually moved in the wrong direction. So, the new number, I don't know if you've heard, Michael but it's now 2.3 times revenue, 2.3. So this See, is actually- <laughs> We all got 15%. We just,
1: we just got 15% wealthier got on yeah. this podcast. Exactly. So if you're an owner, if you're, if you're a buyer, bad news, it just got 15% more expensive for you. So I guess it depends on which side of that line you're on.
2: Although, unfortunately, that Dave DeVoe guy is about to tear it apart. So, uh, so that, right. that bonus, right. I know, I'm so sorry, I feel bad. So that increase is actually going in the wrong direction. Because a typical firm is probably closer to 1.7 times revenue. But we can throw out the whole revenue, multiple of revenue, because it's not only inaccurate, it's just downright dangerous. It's, it's wrong. I'll get off my soapbox. But you, know, you can imagine two identical firms that are both generating 1.5 million in, in revenue. But one is a really well-run company. They're not only growing way faster, but they've figured out a machine where they can do it with two less employees and maybe, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of of incremental cash flow. Well, that firm quite literally is worth at least a million dollars more than that other, you know, the firm that hasn't done that work and isn't growing at that rate and can't run an efficient machine. So that revenue is such a blunt instrument. it's, It's pretty much irrelevant. Now, by contrast, one could say, you know, hey, a multiple of cash flow. Well, the good news is we're now talking about cash flow and profitability, and profitability, not revenues or a profitability, is what pays back an investor on an investment. So we're we're getting closer. That's good. And they might say, okay, well, let's use a multiple of that cash flow number. And you know, honestly, Reader's Digest, when we're spitballing with someone, we'll use multiples because you can't talk through a thirty thousand cell discounted cash flow, you know, in a conversation. And so,
1: how do I think about multiples of free cash flow? Like, what's a What's a if the going rate was 2x revenue but now it's 2.3 like what's a a going re- multiple rate on profits or free cash flow
2: yep yep and um and by the way that that 2.3 might be might be appropriate if you have maybe 50 or 60 million in aum you're exiting the business within 6 months of selling it's on a, a a bidding online eBay type site, you know. Then there could actually be logic behind that 2.3 being accurate, but for the most part, we should assume it's more like 1.7. So for the multiple of cash flow, you know, for a hundred million dollar firm, we've seen it creep up, um, and I could talk about the trends in valuation. You know, we we've studied that. So we're. we're you know, off the peaks, but we're way off the nadir that we saw in 2009. And right now, it's creeped up to be above, say, four to six times cash flow. So it's probably about four, about 66 percent of the firms, two thirds of the firms, we could assume, for a hundred million dollar firm, will sell for say 4.3 to say 6.3 times cash flow. Um, for a half billion dollar firm, it's going to be probably 5.3 maybe 5.4 to say you know 7.4 times cash flow as you get bigger the, the larger more- the
1: larger firms literally get higher multiples like not just that you've got more revenue and free cash flow cuz it's just a, a bigger business so more dollars are are flowing through the funnel but literally the multiples get bigger as the firm gets bigger
2: yeah yeah and there's a technical reason for that what what's happening is as you get bigger The risks of your company are going down. That's the primary factor. So there's three things that drive valuation. Literally, there's about a a thousand things that go into it, but they fall into three categories. And one of those categories is risk. And as you get bigger, you're going to have more processes in place, right? Generally as you get bigger, you're going to have more employees. You can imagine you have a very small firm with six people, you know, and someone's sick. Let's say they get mono and they're out for a couple months. You know, you are scrambling to try to keep the train on the tracks. So it's like pain and suffering. Everywhere. You know, you have 30 people and it's like, oh, no, Marianne's been out sick. I didn't know she had mono. She's been out three weeks. I didn't even know. We should send her flowers. You know, it's like you get bigger that that... This impact, especially you know, step function type items like employees, has less of an impact. So the reason those multiples go up is, as you get bigger, a number of different risks are mitigated. The company is is generally moving toward more and more industrial strength.
1: And then, what are your other two factors uh, that are driving valuation or categories? If one is risk,
2: risk, growth, and profitability. So on the on the growth side, you know, growth is critical, and you. You know, you start clearly if you can invest in two businesses and one's growing, you know, at twice the, the pace, you're gonna be willing to pay a lot more. And you know, because I know some profits
1: of the, are gonna go up faster. Like, profits too, yeah. And maybe yeah absolutely.
2: <laughs> and you know, growth is growth is good. Growth is how we we become better and better at what we do in most cases. I mean, growth there's there's a counterpoint too, which will be fun to talk about. And you know, even then I know some folks are probably listening in, they're thinking, hey, I'm gonna sell my firm in a couple years. You know, what can I do now? And I think with growth, it's not just the number; it's what's driving that number. And you know, two identical firms, and I, I ask, hey, geez, you, you have you know top decile growth. How, how are you doing? This this is just phenomenal. And, you know, the first person I asked, they just say, oh, so glad you asked. We're doing this great stuff. We did all the segmentation work. And now we've actually, you know, refined the the value proposition that we have for each one. We have also really got into, into digital, you know, marketing and we've segmented the market base and we've done this. And, you know, we brought in two new business development people and we've trained them this way. And the referrals, let's talk about, you know, and they're just going on and on and on. You're like, wow, okay. Awesome. Yeah. I want to see some of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you talk to the second firm, you say, wow, you know, top decile, how are you doing it? And they're like, "Uh, I think I'm just very charismatic. You know, people, people like me. You're like, okay, I'm not going to pay as much for that firm. So, you know,
1: if you're, you realize the growth thing, like I'm buying you out. The growth is your charisma (laughs) and you're going to be gone because I'm buying it from you. (laughs)
2: Exactly. Or they just have no clue. They're like, I know. Isn't it great? I have no clue how we're growing so quickly. But wow. Okay. Hmm. That's a little concerning. So I'd say, you know, for, for those that are thinking through whether you plan to sell two years or 20 years down the road, you know, really thinking through that growth machine. How are you doing this? Why, you know, it's also closing leaky buckets, you know. It's the the downdraft of of folks decumulating. Sometimes it's beyond that. They're they're moving assets away for this reason. But someone who's really been thoughtful about their growth trajectory, their their story is going to resonate more. And you you saw where the puck is going to. It's not just growth. It's ultimately the optimal profit, not just maximum profit, you know, it needs to be optimally managed. But that that profitability is critical. That's what pays back the investor on the investment.
1: And so, you know, you kind of talked about pricing off of revenue. You know, slightly better to price off profitability and free cash flow because at least it's it's less of a blunt instrument because you don't miss out on things like two firms have the same revenue, but one of them's got like five more staff members, so they're just less efficient in dropping less money to the bottom line, but I take it you 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 don't view that as the end point of refining valuation. So like what's what's next beyond looking based on free cash flow and multiples of free cash flow?
2: Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. So we went from that revenue to that cash flow, and what you'll do with that cash flow too, in many cases, is you're is you're making some adjustments if you're using that that blunt instrument of a multiple. You're saying, okay, wait a sec, you know that that principle's. Going to be leaving, so that's going to free up another 250k or whatever it is. And G, when they come, you know, the country club and stuff is going to come out. And someone sometimes people will make those adjustments. Well, what's better yet is not just making those adjustments for a given year and then you know doing some very basic math on it. Instead, to say, hey, those adjustments are going to are going to kick in next year, and the year after, and the year after. So. By doing that, if you start looking forward and you say, okay, let's actually start to forecast what's going to happen with assets and revenue and expenses, start creating a methodical assessment of what's going to happen with this firm over the next five plus years, then you're starting to create what's called a discounted cash flow. So quite literally, you're starting to model the growth trajectory of the firm. And we nerd out, we break it into sixteen different components. you know what's the market going to do? How about new business coming in? Gee, you have a referral relationship that's probably at a different growth rate. What's your attrition rate? All these different things so we can start to nerd out and say, "All right, what's going to happen with this growth trajectory? Some folks you know believe fees are going to compress others. Don't believe they're going to compress. You know, gee, what's going to happen? Are you going after bigger clients? Because if they are, if you are, then they will compress because of your fee structure, etc. Most firms have these tiers fee structure. So you start thinking through all these elements when you need to hire people, how things are going to change your real estate, and you're able to methodically think through you know, what economically is likely to happen with this organization. So when you do that, this discounted cash flow, which is, you know, a blessed, a, a well-regarded technique to, to valuing firms, especially cash flow firms like our industry, you know, you're able to create really a mini business plan to project what's going to happen with this organization, what those cash flows and that profitability that, that you know is so important are going to be. And then we discount those back to present day based on an assessment of the risk you know how likely is this to occur you know how well is this company managing different risks what's called a discount rate is what you discount those back to present day of and it's an assessment of of the risk or the reward that you need to be able to invest in this company
1: and what kinds of discount rates get used when advisory firms value themselves.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's another element where for years at, at Schwab, I knew all the different consultants and bankers. And, and you know, when I talked to them, because I had created my own little models, I'm like, what are you using for a discount rate? Let's talk about it. And oftentimes they'd be like, ah, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I have a pretty good idea my gut checks as this. And I'm, you know, me, by now, you know, I'm nerd. So I created this very methodical buildup of all these different factors. What what you start to build up is, believe it or not, these are very risky businesses. So, you know, 16, 17, 18 is at the very low end. You know, we've seen firms where they're just very risky and you're getting up into 35% plus. A
1: 35% discount rate. So like... Almost all the profits past three or four years basically discount to nothing at that point. Like that, that's, uh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, there's compounds them down pretty quickly.
2: It compounds them down pretty quickly. So, yeah. And it's appropriate. You know, if you're an organization that has no succession plan in place, the entire company is dependent on you. Let's say you even have non you don't have non-competes, non-solicits. The age, weighted average age of your clients is 10 years above the average. As a matter of fact, you have a, a concentrated client that takes up, you know, 30% of the business where we know that the top 1% of your clients should take up 8.2% of your business in, in terms of revenue. You know, a litany of different items where you're doing these things, where you have these open gaps. That's a very risky proposition. And it's not going to take much to disrupt that entire organization. And rightly so, um, the valuation on that firm is and should be low. So oftentimes, what we're doing with firms is, you know, we'll do a valuation. It's, it's $11,000, or $21,000 to do our valuations. Um, and it'll take three to, to six days. And I, and I know you asked earlier. I haven't gotten to it yet. But I'm happy to talk through that arc that we take someone through. But, um, you know, oftentimes, it's like, okay, great. You have all this information in this 30,000-cell model, you know. Now let's talk about how I how I make this more valuable. And it's like okay, well, on the risk side, close this gap tomorrow morning. Close that gap two weeks from now. You know, let's let's close this leaky bucket. Find out why your clients are not a, either a trading or why they're drawing down their assets so much. You know, all these different things. It, it creates it's, it's so neat because it creates this this tool to help you optimize your firm. You know, benchmarking studies. I love benchmarking studies. You know, all the custodians do them, dimensional, all these different ones. They're such great, rich data sources. But this is even cooler because, you know, with keystrokes, you can run scenarios, you know, you can compare it to benchmarks and and it becomes this diagnostic for your firm. It's really cool.
1: I've always been fascinated with the idea of, like, using valuations essentially as a business management tool. It's sort of a standard thing in... Wall Street World and publicly traded companies. Like if you want feedback on whether you've got a good vision for your company in the long run that's generating enterprise value as like the CEO of a publicly traded firm, just look at what's happening in the stock price of your publicly traded firm and you know ask the analysts that are buying and selling it, you know, what they're bidding it up for and what they're bidding it down for. And and it's like it's a powerful feedback mechanism. You know, obviously it makes some. Wall Street CEOs maybe be a little bit too short-term minded about managing that stock price, but like it's it's a powerful feedback mechanism. And it's always struck me that one of the challenges of just advisory firms, I like guess, small businesses in general, not being so easy to value. Therefore, we don't value them very often or, or many firms at all. And if you've never gone through a valuation process, like you may not even realize. Either the firm's worth more than you thought, or sometimes the firm's worth less than you thought, or sometimes the firm's worth less than you thought. But if you just did these couple of things that help improve profitability, or improve growth, or even just reduce you know business risk, suddenly your business gets way more valuable. And as you said, I can envision that the the valuation just becomes a a roadmap for your business strategy for the next year. Like, okay, if we put these things, like we. We put some non-competes in place, and we build out a little bit more process. And I'm going to, you know, add another. I'm going to add a formal ops manager because the stability my business gets with an ops manager, I'll make back his or her salary and increased valuation by improving the stability of my business.
2: Mm -hmm. You're so spot on. I I, nearly every time we value a firm for the first time, they'll invariably it's wow. You know, this is great. It's so powerful to know what our firm is worth. But Dave. I got as much or even more out of the journey you took us on. I now look at my company differently. And that's, you know, we are quite literally tearing a company apart economically and and putting it back together. And, you know, everyone on the team, we're like, hey, heads up. It's in passing, right? Because our, our job is to value the firm. But... We're talking as we go, and we're going. Hey, heads up! I I know you—you know—you feel good about your your retention rate and things like that. But just so you know, you know, you're you're at 3.2 percent attrition, which isn't horrible. But you know, for a firm your size in the industry, these three benchmarks say you should be at 1.5. And by the way, if you were at 1.5 let me hit a keystroke. Your valuation would shift in this direction. So, you know, anecdotally, we're going through it and we're mentioning those things. And as a result of that, you know, it won't be a shock to you. More and more of our clients see it and they're, they immediately say, okay, we got to do this every year. This is now our dashboard to run the company. So we now, you know, actually have valuation scheduled um, because folks are finalizing their information. They're integrating this into their, their annual planning. And, you know, it, it's just such a, a, a great, powerful tool. And the nice thing about it, too, is is I think you're spot on on Wall Street. All this data is out there. All these analysts are sort of tearing it apart and things like that. And there is this bad behavior that, that can occur with the CEOs that, you know, are trying to placate the analysts. Well, the, the nice thing about privately held firms is you now have the data, but, you know, you're not beholden to this person or that.
1: Yeah, you, you don't have to worry that if you're not generating enough shareholder value in this quarter. The shareholders will go to the board and try to have you removed. It's your company. You're kind of stable here. You just get a direct line of sight into what will literally make your business more valuable.
2: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, though, uh, in some cases, we'll see folks that, you know, so far it's all been positive. It's been, OK, they've gotten the light and they've, they're valuing their firm in many cases for succession. They're like, it's time to do this. And they also realize that making investments in their firm, I, I think in some cases they want to be disciplined in terms of how they do things. They want to discount it for their, their staff as well. And in some cases, you can think through how you want to manage expenses that can have an impact on the valuation in the near term as well. So, you know, that, I don't know, it's interesting. We get into some of the complexity of of how folks are, are managing their business and a discipline. Another interesting facet is um, when folks have projections and growth goals. Do you actually use those growth goals that are stretch and you actually put them in the in the valuation work or do you you know or do you have a more realistic thing of what's going to happen. So it creates all these interesting downstream um implications to run the organization.
1: Yeah that was going to be my next question to this is is like how you come up with these assumptions. I right? I mean things like swing a discount rate well even just from 16% to 18% when you start applying that to a long-term multi-year cash flow. That's not trivial, much less, uh, you know, a discount rate that can go up to 35. And, you know, even just things like growth rate, right? Like, uh, you know, I I think we're going to grow at 10 or 12 or like, hey, if you tell me we should grow at 14 and my is more valuable, I'm going to put 14 into the spreadsheet. Like, how do you get to reasonable assumptions or even define what assumptions are reasonable in the first place?
2: Yeah. So there's a couple components to it. And we've even had the extreme... Well, uh, uh, talk through a couple components. So one, it's, it's collaborative to a degree, right? We are experts on this industry. We're experts on valuation. We've torn every you know, subcomponent of the model apart to be very disciplined in terms of what, what works and what should work and what's reasonable. You know, Conversely, that advisor that's running the business, they know their company and some of the specifics better than anyone on the planet. So, you know, it is a dialogue where we're going back and forth. And I, I think the good news overall in this industry is, is people wear white cowboy hats. So the good guys are doing the right thing, et cetera. Our approach too, by splicing and dicing things into such small numbers is, you know, it, it creates another layer of, of discipline. So for instance, with the stock market, you know, that's one item out of 16 that that could go into the, the growth trajectory of so Well, you know, we'll say, okay, well, gee, what do you... I'll oversimplify. It doesn't work this way. But for, for kicks or for clarity, we'll, we'll use it as an example. What do you think the, the market performance is going to be? And someone says, well, gee, you know what? If you look at our history, we've been bumping up against double digits. I mean, I think it's going to be 9.5%, maybe even 11.5% for the next five years. And we're like, well, what? And they'll say, well, look at the history. We'll say, okay, well, let's talk through that. Because... Ibbotson data for the long term averages says this, and a typical firm has, you know, the split of equities and large cap and small cap and fixed income. And when you do this blended, it comes up with this zone in this range. Can you please help me understand? what's different about your model that would enable you to have different performance than this. And, you know, it happens rarely that people are are throwing around numbers that are outside of that range. A matter of fact, advisors tend to be pretty conservative overall. Many want to take market performance out of the equation, but then we can have a dialogue and understand if they have, you know, something that is extremely unique, that's going to create above average results or, Hey, we're going to be in this range or, or, or that. So part of it is, is, um, Thoughtfully thinking through these different items, and that's why we've spliced and diced things. On the risk side, I mean, we've gotten very detailed, so we've done a ton of calculations to determine that you know, for someone who has a weighted average age of their client base that's above or below average. What the impact should be on the risk. I mean, we've literally gotten into, you know, mortality tables and thought through the. We've done analysis to determine what the the drawdown rate as is as people get older. We even get in, depending on the client, we'll even get into whether or not they have relationships with the next gen. If it's an ultra high net worth organization, you know, the drawdowns are going to be less, but philanthropy and things like that kick it. So, in each element, depending on what it is, and, you know, after doing hundreds of hundreds of these, we've gotten very particular in terms of what the tax or the benefit of a given item should be
1: and so like in practice it's you guys that's that ultimately become like the the final arbiters of what is or is not a a quote reasonable assumption or not
2: yeah, yeah. So you know, both Tim Forrest and I were were trained by McKinsey folks. You know, he was at McKinsey for four years out of business school, and I, I was trained by ex-McKinsey folks at American Express's business strategy team. And you know, with that, there's the bottoms up and the tops down. That's one of the key concepts, and it's it, and everything we do is mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. So these very methodical, sort of classical business strategy consulting techniques, and one of those is what we call forest in the trees, which is also bottoms up and tops down. So during the discussion with a given client, and you know this is over the course of three to six meetings, we're talking about the history, we're going line item by line item. You know, based on these three-year, four-year, two-year caggers, we think it's going to bend in this way or that. What do you think? Hey, and we have a dialogue with a client on different line items. And we're going to go through and determine what those line items should be. We're also then going to take a deep breath and we're going to say, okay, once we step back... How does this look based on what we know of the organization and the hundreds of these and the 150 years of experience that the team now has? The five, you know, consultants on the team, and we say, wait a sec. You know what? We think this is bending in this direction or that. So we will. You know, it's rare that we have to put on the arbiter hat, but it does happen. And here's two examples of how it it can play out. We did one where it was, you know, probably a 1.6 billion dollar firm, and it had a lot of partners. And it was quite an experience because a lot of partners wanted to be on every call. And it was a migration of equity. And it wasn't long before every line we went through, we found that about four people were pushing in one direction and six people were pulling in the other direction. Well,
1: I would think in general, the nature of this exercise is like, if I'm a buyer, I pull the number in one direction that makes the valuation better for me. And if I'm a seller, I pull the number in the other direction that makes it makes it good in the other end, right? You know, the, uh you know the the seller says, "Well, you know, last year was a little low on our growth rate, but we've been pretty strong in the long run. I think it's going to be re- it's going to rebound." And the buyer says, "Oh no, no, last year's growth rate was low. Like we have to pull all the growth rates down going forward because we're not growing like we used to anymore."
2: Yeah, so there is that natural sort of pull. And if we had two, you know, mobsters that we were negotiating with, it might be that extreme. The good news is, I think you know most people a few layers. You know, and that does exist and it's a natural thing. And and by all means, we are hyper aware of it, not just from a negative, but also we see the reverse where people are almost too giving and we say, hey, that's fine. We just want to give you a heads up that on all these different factors, you know, Everything's pushed in one direction, and this is starting to discount the firm or whatever else. So we're calibrating, we're thinking about this. We're not just sort of... And look at the team. I mean, everyone's in their 40s, 50s, 60s plus. So we're all either peers of the folks that we're working with or or very grounded and have no consternation to say, hey, we think it should work this way or that. And the way it will manifest itself is... um, and also, the good news is everyone we're working with is smart people that are also very quantitative. So they're getting the math where we're able to have very logical discussions on how this particular item should work or not. In extreme cases, I mean, two things that we've done, we've created a model where it's a black box and we say, we'll take your input, but we're not going to negotiate every item or let every you know people pull in one direction or another. We're just going to go in a room. We're going to come out with evaluation and we're going to let you... Get you know what it is, and it's less col- collaborative. And it's intentionally for you know, this happens, life is messy. Right.
1: So you know, just let us be the arbiters, give us the inputs. We're going to go in a room, we'll come up with a reasonable number. You'll probably both dislike it, which means we found a good number in the middle, and we're moving on.
2: And we'll have a lot of defensible reasons for that. Now, the other scenario is in some cases, you know, folks will have passion about the number being this or that. And you can imagine a lot of folks, as I mentioned, it's used as evaluation. In other cases, it's used as a diagnostic. You know, So a few things. One is if certain things get out of whack, it will actually start to Influence the discount rate, and early on, someone's no longer with the company. But they had a bias. They're like, "Oh, well, if they're going to push these numbers in this direction, I'm going to push the discount rate in that direction, and I'll, you know, sort of offset that." And I'm like, "No, <laughs> we don't do that. That person doesn't share the values of the firm. They they weren't here very long." And instead, we have some things where if a firm's growing extremely quickly, it actually creates a risk profile. You know, it's in it, the analogy I use sometimes: if you're driving down the street at 40 miles an hour, you know the steering wheel gets bumped, it's going to be fine. If you're going 120 miles an hour and you make any mistake, you know, you're know you going to be in a ditch, you're going to be rolling. So as firms grow extremely fast, there's actually a, a greater risk profile that's part of the equation. But we also will get to a point where we'll say, hey, you know what? We are going to have to make a note of this in the, in the valuation document that on this item or these items, it's outside of the scope of what we believe is appropriate and defensible and blah, 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 like some legalese around that. So... Fortunately, this this sort of stuff doesn't come up much, you know. And we're we're working with smart people, and, and we have a, a strong enough spine too that that's not going to be a, a, a pain point.
1: No, I do have to ask as well because I I hear this of a as a, a criticism or a concern sometimes or around just kind of the the discounted cash flow model kind of framework. Is is there a like do you end up too reliant on kind of just all these forward looking assumptions that are hard to pick the numbers on because the future is relatively unknown at the end of the day? Is there a risk we just get overly reliant on assumptions you can't really know that much about the future on?
2: I don't think so. Well, let's put it this way. This is the very best, the very best way to value a company with the characteristics of an RAA. You know, book value doesn't apply. Even the multiples, how do you pick a multiple? I mean, we you talked earlier about audited pri- privately, you know, Publicly traded firms and PE ratios are an example of like a comparable, right? And they're really rooted in something. They are rooted in, you know, comparing firm X to, you know, 40 other companies that have some of the same characteristics, audited financials, analyzing these folks, thinking through, okay, should this be in the third decile and the seventh decile? these are publicly traded firms with privately traded firms you don't have any of that information you can't compare to determine whether or not someone should be at a 4 or a 4.3 or a 9.7 multiple you know there's just no comparison that that approach just actually technically does not apply even though people still use it so that's that's another you know sort of flaw in that ointment so this this projection and this approach we believe is the very best way to value an organization, now is it perfect? No. Is it defensible? Is it is it you know is this thirty thousand cell model? Was it created by you know six Ivy League level MBAs with two CFAs that worked on it? You know it's on our fifteenth iteration. Have we peeled the onion on item after item after item? Do I think it's very defensible and powerful? Absolutely. However, I'm also mature enough and and um, humble enough. To know that I can come up with a valuation, we can have Jeremy Siegel from Harvard bless, you know, the model that we did and say, All right, Michael, your firm is worth X. And Michael might say, too bad, I'm not selling at that price. <laughs> or the other next no. gen might say, "Too bad, I'm not buying at that price." You know, so so the reality is, is is we're going to come up with the very best valuation. We're going to have defensible. Oftentimes, people will have a lot of confidence in what we do, but then there's the reality of of you know these are adults that are making their decisions, and and that transaction might be at a different price.
1: So help us understand. I I, I do want to come back to this. Kind of hypothetical example that we talked about earlier. So you know, you you've got a two hundred million dollar firm. I guess just to make math easier, I'll assume it's worth two times revenue, just because it makes the numbers round and easy. Right? It's like a it's a it's a two hundred million dollar firm. If they're billing the classic one percent, they have two million dollars of revenue. So if they're going to get valued at two x, it's a four million dollar firm. So like that's the number. So. I'm junior partner. I'm interested in buying in. Like, how does this $4 million purchase price typically get carved up for me? Like, what, how would this deal typically get structured?
2: Yeah. So first, you got to figure out, okay, how much is that person buying at a given time? And let's say they're, they're buying 10% on day one or something. So you're like, okay, great. One is there's a minority discount that should potentially take place here, right? There's what's called a control premium and a minority discount. Um, It's driven by a number of factors, you know, you have, but the punchline is you have less control, i.e. maybe no control over this company. So one is, is there a discount that's going to apply or not? We sometimes see firms that say no, you know, one of the most respected firms in the industry with $10 billion in AUM says, we don't discount it, you know, and there's some logic behind that. That's, that's nice and airtight.
1: Not to share their, uh, you know, inner workings of it's super secret, but like, what is the rationale for not offering a minority discount on I'm presuming what is clearly a minority share? Like what is the rationale?
2: Yeah, so the, the rationale is that so you can use it in a couple different ways, or there's a couple different scenarios. One is to say, hey, you know what? Let's say it's a, an organization that's going to go on for years and years. One of the challenges that firms have in that scenario is, you know, I'm running my firm today. You're a younger, smarter than person than me, I'm going to sell my firm to you. And she would, you know, I, I really like this person. I, I'm going to give them a discount on it. You know, they've helped grow the company and all the stuff or whatever. For some reason I do that. And then suddenly you become majority shareholder and you say, wow, this is great. I've been buying this thing at 25% off or whatever else. I think I'm going to go sell it now. And suddenly there's a huge arbitrage opportunity, right? Oh, because
1: you, if they get enough control, they, they, or if I guess if they get enough control quickly enough, like you, you flip that thing. <laughs> It's like it's like house flipping, but with better
2: leverage. It could be right, you know. They get a discount for this reason or that, or they bought this many shares, and then they go sell it. So it's not uncommon, you know. There's a common fear for advisors, so that's why we have things like clawbacks that says, "Okay, well, if you do that, then you're going to have to pay me the delta," because I didn't sell it to you for a discount for this reason, or you have other legal things. You know, people when they're they're building these firms. You know they have a lot of love and pride and nurture that goes into it, and they'd like to see this thing sustain itself, etc. So in either case, you can have these clawbacks. So a counterpoint can be: Wait a sec, you know, back to that, Jeremy Siegel, etc. We don't want to sell the firm at a discount. We don't think it's appropriate. We know on the common market it's worth this. We have a high degree of confidence that this is going to be worth more and more over time. You're an adult. You're welcome to buy in or not. Um, we're not forcing you. But we're going to sell it at the going rate, and that way we mitigate the risk that you know tomorrow morning there's some sort of uprising, and everyone sells the firm, et cetera so that's part of it you know with the discount there's there's a number of different factors: one could you know argue logically that there's a you know control premium or since you don't have control, there should be a discount, other components that go into that. Are related to either emotions. Gee, I like this person or whatever else, or I want them to be successful, or I want to share. Others, and this is one too that we often find ourselves countering, is the next gen even saying, Hey, it's my blood and sweat and tears that help grow this. I've been doing this for six years, and I I help this. You owe me for my blood, sweat, and tears. And you know, we delicately and diplomatically share a counterpoint in many situations, which is yes, your blood, sweat and tears did help make this company what it is. And we are so grateful for what you've done, but that was your job and you got paid for it. And now we're talking about you becoming a shareholder and buying into this wonderful, elegant machine that you and me and all these other people have brought together and created, but um, everyone was paid for their work. And now you have this opportunity. So, you know, sometimes we're were brought in and part of our job is to make sure that the folks are thinking through all sides of that equation. And you know, we have no dog in the fight. Some folks, you know, want to discount 50% or so, fantastic. You know, here's the pros, cons, and implications. Other other times there's logic or rationale for decisions that we need to raise a flag and say, hey, that might not be, you know, airtight logically. So all part of the equation. So
1: if I'm if I'm gonna buy my Ten percent initial stake. So you know, I'm 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 going to buy a four hundred thousand dollar initial slice. If we're not doing a minority discount,
2: yep. What does that look like? So, so wait, what, what does
1: that look like? Like what 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 checks am typical. I going to be writing and when? Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. I'll get the checkbook out. So for for our industry, you know, we've had a history of being seller financed, and what that's you know historically was about twenty five percent down. That's creeped up over time. So if it's an internal transaction, it's it's common to have a thirty percent down, and the rest will be a seller note. Maybe over the next five years that will be paid back. So you know, in this particular scenario, I'm buying my ten percent. It's four hundred k. Maybe it's discounted, maybe not. And then I'm writing a check for thirty percent down, and then. Often the seller is saying, "Okay, you owe me money. Here's the promissory note. Start paying
1: me now." On my four hundred k slice, like I'm, I'm in for a hundred to one hundred and twenty grand down payment, yep. and then yep. I'm making payments on the remaining three hundred thousand dollars over the next over the next five years. So you know, sixty grand a year plus interest, however that yep. amortizes. Interest I guess.
2: typically, you know, prime plus one hundred and fifty or two hundred basis points. So yeah, you're spot on. You're you're digging through the C cushions, coming up with 120K. Again, these are all typical, they're all over the map, but this is a, a pretty traditional deal structure. And then you're paying back the advisors. So this can be attractive because you know you're you're writing a small check, but you're getting the, you know, and in that case, it's appropriate you would now get 10% of the profit distributions, right? So
1: which is the key part of this, right? So if I may Two million dollar revenue firm, and you know let's say running like healthy twenty five percent profit margins that a lot of firms get to uh, at that point there's five hundred thousand dollars a year of profits, so the bad news is I owe sixty thousand dollars a year of note payments plus interest, but i 'm getting like fifty grand a year of profits plus growth, so my like slippage is ten or twenty grand a year,
2: yep, and you can almost see how back in the olden days you know this structure probably came to be it was you know nice principles that were saying okay i need some skin in the game i don't want to break this person's back you know or this person doesn't want to take on risk or whatever it is and the numbers are in that zone where you know
1: you got a you got a little skin in the game but mm-hmm. i mean yeah. for most people the the overwhelmingly the hardest part would actually be the down payment part not the ongoing note payments because the profits are covering 75 plus percent of the of the note payments.
2: So that's it. And you can and you can see the math too. You know, earlier we talked about what we call that cap table engineering, where, you know, someone who says, okay, I'm gonna sell 10% a year for the next 10 years, this person will buy it. And, you know, year one, you do this deal, you just dug through the C cushion it's got 120K. And gee whiz, you're digging into your pockets during the first year because it's not quite covering it. And then, uh oh, they want another 10%. So let me go borrow some money from my uncle. And then that gap on my new chunk is not being closed. The next one's starting to close a little bit. So it doesn't take long before someone's either out of capital to deploy, you know, gee, I now blew through 400K. I just don't have any more savings to put down. But we're also sick of tightening our belt and not taking vacations. You know, and that's where suddenly it can get upside down, where this person doesn't have the appetite to buy additional shares at this point.
1: And, and I guess that's part of the point of the discussion of buying these things gradually, like trying to do share transitions gradually over time. Because if you did ten percent every few years, this gets a little easier. Because if there's some growth, by the time you get to the second or third, right on that you're buying the first one's paid off, and now that's free cash flow. Right? Because like if I'm I'm getting my fifty thousand dollars a year profits for five years. I immediately hand that money back to the uh, to the firm to pay the note, but then in the sixth year, suddenly I keep all the money. It's like all this money is flowing in at you, which you can, I guess, either take some nice vacations or something, uh, uh, contribute to the co- kid's college account, or plow the money back in to buy your next tranche voluntarily.
2: And Michael this is why it's so important for people not to procrastinate on succession planning because if you start early enough and you get that flywheel going you know identify those people make sure they're the right people but don't delay you know we see cans unfortunately kick down the road and you forget about this for 2 years and you just lost that employee's ability to you know to be able to buy in future shares. So the sooner you've you know, the stock market's growing, these companies are growing, the longer you wait, the more expensive it is, the sooner you start, the more cash flow they have to invest.
1: But I I guess like playing devil's advocate from the from the seller's end, like at what point does it just feel aggravating that you're selling the firm that is being bought from you using the cash flow that you would have had if you just kept it and didn't sell the firm? Exactly. Like, so as the seller, I don't feel builder. like I'm making progress yeah. here.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So we're... And this is the emergence of different things that are occurring in the marketplace. And one of them is very much related to that. It's advisors that are saying, I didn't get in this business to be a bank. I didn't get in this business to lend people money to buy my shares. So there's a few things that are happening, which is, hey, go get a loan. And pay me, I don't want and, and you know part of it is the risks they're taking on, part of it is they're they're doing this down payment up front, et cetera, but instead saying, "Hey, you go get the money, pay me up front, and then they're not worried about you know the holidays and so on, sort of looking at their toes, saying, "Hey, can you give me a break It's been a rough year, you know this happened, et cetera, and they don't have to um, defer payments, et cetera, so we've seen the emergence of a lot of lenders in this space, you know we have SBA loans that are now part of the equation and advisors feeling more comfortable telling their staff to look into those or there's commercial loans that are have come into play too. And advisors are saying, hey, go look at these. So
1: and for those who aren't familiar, what's the difference between SBA loans and commercial loans?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, we're, I guess I'll say it live. We haven't launched it yet, but by the time you post this, maybe it'll be launched. We're launching something called Devoe Capital Services, which is for people who just asked that question. How do I call up Devoe and company? We've been doing this informally for, for a couple of years now and say, all right, this is my situation. What loans can apply? Because SBA loans, you know, that party that's selling the shares needs to exit the business really within a year. There might be some logic to make it go longer, but not much, so they need to be exiting the business there's also a floor and a and a top end of how much can be loaned for something like that so s b a have certain constraints you know if I wanted to stay in the business for another ten years or I wanted to take an s b a loan to go acquire a firm and that person wasn't exiting, you know it can't apply so there's commercial loans so commercial loans again this is you know. When I was at Schwab, several times I went to the Lenny market because we at Schwab at the time and said, "Okay, let's help advisors with loans." And there wasn't an appetite, you know, for folks to come in and make loans. it's, it's because these are what are called cash flow businesses? There's no what's called a secondary source of repayment. And no, what that means? Is no, if I'm a bank, there's
1: no collateral, right? Be- like if you don't make the payments, what am I going to do? Come take your laptop? Like exactly. I can't take your factory and your machinery. I can take. You're exactly. Right top and the shingle. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the front door.
2: That's not going to cover it. Yep. Yep. So there was reticence. You know, I stubbed my toe a bunch of times trying to get some players to come in. But the good news is I shifted. So there's a number of, of firms and a growing number that are now, you know, open to and curious about making loans to advisors.
1: Who's popular in, in this space? Like, are there certain lenders or players that you're seeing come up most often in the RIA space now?
2: Yeah, yeah, there's a couple. So SBA, I mean there's an interesting thing about SBA is it can be such a headache, you know, with all due respect the government isn't always the most efficient machine out there <laughs> and to go through the small business administration to get a loan even though they can be great tools was literally Like months and months of time, I, you Mm. know, I would actually track and check in. They're like, yep, sent the paperwork. haven't heard a thing. Well, there's, there's about a dozen plus firms that do enough of these loans that they can actually bless the loan right away. And there's a company called Live Oak Bank, which has done a lot of these that fits that criteria. Now, full disclosure, we did the business case for Live Oak to enter the space. And it's funny, too, when I first met with these guys, you know, they were like, hey, yeah, we're interested in doing SBA loans. And I think they said, um, we're, the, we're the fourth largest SBA lender in the U.S. I was like, wait, what?
1: That's a lot I of mean, loan volume." Bank
2: of America? Yeah. Wells Fargo? Yeah. Live Oak? I've never heard of you. Are you? They're like, yeah, it's legit. So, you know, very focused on segments. They really bring in experts like Jason Carroll from Schwab, you know. We used to work with back in the day, they bring in experts and they only focus on certain niches. So they were contemplating several years ago, making loans to the REA space, you know, so they've come in with a big bang. So they're doing the SBA loans and variations on other loans as well. There's a, a another firm called, you know, Oak Street, which is doing commercial loans, non SBA, you know? Okay.
1: And the commercial loan side is just more flexible, like What's my difference here? I guess you said like SBA loans, if we're going to do the loan, I have to be exiting in a year. So I guess uh, a commercial loan, Just I just got convinced to the bank to lend me the money under whatever term. So if I'm staying, that's fine. I just have to convince the bank that it's a good deal for me to stay.
2: Absolutely. So the a lot more flexibility. SBA loans, by the very nature, are, are intended to create entrepreneurship and have a lot of guardrails. Um, they're very valuable in, in many regards. Powerful tools, but there there's a constrained set. By contrast, commercial loans, whether it's you know Oak Street or or PPC loan, is another one that's that's gained momentum in this space. And there's others. You know, that I always encourage folks even to start with their local bank who they're currently using. Uh, those folks, you know, might have some incentives to make those loans. But those commercial bank or loans have much more flexibility in terms of the use of proceeds or the constraints, etc.
1: Do you necessarily get better? Or worse terms, like they'll loan you more, or the interest rate is lower, or things like that? Or is it just like, it's the other like lending and underwriting constraints, like, want to stay in more than a year, got to go commercial, ready to get right out, SBA will carry you through.
2: Yeah, yeah, so there's there's certain characteristics and that's why we formally went through this and we've sort of created a a decision flow that we walk th- folks through because they're coming in there's there's these loans there's a new capability that dynasty has there's you know private equity folks are always curious about but it doesn't always apply there's just an and it's shifting on an ongoing basis. So what we've created is really a decision tree to walk folks through and say okay, Tell me about this what about that what are your needs here what are your constraints there and we can logically walk them through you know it's going to take 20 or 30 minutes uh, of time and we do it free of charge but logically walk through these constraints so they know the the, the right the set of options that they have and then some of those characteristics within but yeah be prepared I mean with the with the lending process too there's there's a lot of different variables and that's why it's important to talk to a couple lenders in many cases as well
1: so if I'm doing some bank loan thing, like Live Oak, Live Oak Bank is is doing it, it, does the core deal change for me as the buyer? Like I get it from the seller's end. Oh, no, no, you're not seller financing with me. You're buying it from the bank or you're, you're borrowing from the bank. So like from the seller's end, I give you the shares. You give me my $400,000 check on day one. You can settle up with the bank about how you're repaying that four hundred. But like, I get my money now. So I get it from the seller end from the buyer end is it necessarily all that different or am I still basically going to be paying 25 or 30% down and then paying a seller note over the next 5 years at prime plus a 150 or 200 basis points
2: yeah yeah so let me answer that by starting to take a step back with the loan and those components with the deal structure and those different components we've we've ticked on a couple but there's you know I guess with a merger, it's more complex too, but there's probably 20 different deal items, et cetera. With even the valuation, how the valuation might shift on these terms, there's a lot of different moving parts. So what we do when we work with clients is we start with thinking through and understanding and helping the advisor understand the goals and objectives, the fears and aspirations, and then crafting something that really makes the most sense for that particular transaction. So in this particular case, one could say, Hey, if that's a traditional deal structure, and I'm able to give you 100% down or you know whatever it might be, and there's different hybrids that we see, et cetera. But one can say, again, back to valuation, it's risk, growth, and cash flow. If I'm able to mitigate a risk associated with this transaction, i.e., you're getting cash up front, then the valuation should come down because the risk profile has shifted. So it's appropriate To say, all right, gee, you want no down payment, the valuation should go up, you're pushing more risk on the on the seller. Hey, you're gonna get all your money up front, the risk profile is going down, the valuation should go down. So, you know, all these things can be part of the is part of the math and how to how to really craft something that makes the most sense for that particular situation.
1: But my payments as the buyer probably
2: won't be that different. Well, I mean I get like the valuation may shift a little from the valuation, but so the other thing that'll be different and this is powerful too is you know I say okay rather than doing this traditional you know 5 year to the the buyer or the seller instead I'm going out to market to get a loan. Maybe I want 7 years to pay it back. Maybe I want 10 years to pay it back. Matter of fact, it's interesting. You know, This is another insight into it. One of the first clients we worked with, I should say, I worked with when I launched a phone company because initially, it was only me. Today, we're 8 people. But initially, for the first 6 months, it was just me. So the first um, client that I worked with, one of the first 2, was a firm that was looking to acquire a business. It was a billion-dollar REA that was owned by a bank. And it was a lot of fixed income and things like that. But the bank had acquired the firm years before, probably 3 or 4 years before. And We kind of knew what they paid for it, and we kind of knew it was a high price, and we kind of knew that it wasn't worth that anymore. So, sure enough, X discussions in, you know, I'm representing those folks. We're talking to the CEO of the bank, and he says, And by the way, you guys should know this I can't sell it for less than I paid for. And we (laughs) were like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, and I hope you understand, you know, this is a publicly traded firm. These are events that have to be disclosed. And this is not, the analysts aren't going to appreciate this, the shareholders aren't. And we sort of started, you know, deflating. And he's like, but I can make a very attractive loan to you. I can make you loan payments that will stretch out 20 years or more at a very low interest rate. Well, yeah, like I, uh, you well,
1: know, you want to give me near-free financing terms? Exactly, and definitely pay you lots of numbers
2: now, <laughs> and quite literally, it was like, oh, okay, wait a sec. Well, let's not pack up our books yet. You know, we might have a deal here, and quite literally, you know, that's some of the mechanics of of the deal where are you know for other reasons the deal didn't work out, but that economic construct, i.e., the valuation, is this was still doable, I mean a joke amongst us investment bankers is you know if you 're a buyer, hey, you know either tell me the price um, and let me figure out the deal structure or tell me the deal structure and let me figure out the price you know like one of, these things are intimately related, and shifts on one will make shifts on the other
1: well, and i think it's it 's a it 's an important note that I, I think is not often understood particularly by buyers of. Just how unbelievably crucial that payment period is. That you know, if I'm if I'm buying my you know four hundred thousand dollar slice with twenty five or thirty percent down, so I'm putting call it hundred thousand dollars down. I'm financing the other three hundred. So if I'm, if I'm making my payments over five years, I got to pay sixty grand a year plus interest. If I'm going to make my payments over seven years, it's only forty two plus interest. If I'm going to make my payments over ten years it's 30 plus interest and you know this 10% slice at 25% profit margins was kicking off $50,000 a year in in cash flow so you know in 5 years i got to have at least some annual cash flow skin in the game at least until the profits grow more at 7 years I'm probably pretty close to break even even once you stack the interest on. At 10 years I'm cash flow positive from day 1. I did write a big down payment check, but my ongoing notes are cash flow positive from day 1 as long as the profits don't collapse.
2: Yep. Yep.
1: All just driven by financing period.
2: Yep, absolutely. And that's part of our job is is you know, there's a set of tools out there and for anyone contemplating deal structure You know, start with those goals and objectives and then start to look at the tool chest to say, all right, if we do it this way, we can achieve this result or that result. And that's, you know, it's it's so common for folks to come to us and they say, hey, we want to hire you or... Or gee, we don't need to hire you. We're just going to do it the way our, our friend Bob did it. He's a buddy of mine, and I golf with him. And he just did a deal, and we want to rip his page out. Well, Like, guys, it's it's probably not going to apply to your firm. It's it's not. There's not a single best practice. There's so many moving parts, which is good. It enables deals to get done that should get done, whether it's M and A or succession planning. If you use these tools properly. So one more piece I got to ask
1: about this section: the down payment. As we said, like if you. If you can stretch the payments out over long enough, if you can either you know, get the seller to do it or get the bank to do it, if you can stretch the payments out over long enough, it gets really manageable to cash flow the ongoing payments. But if you just don't have the cash for the down payment, you just don't have the cash for the down payment. So like, are there deals where sellers finance way less and only finance on a uh, 5 or 10% or zero? Or are there banks? that will do commercial loans with much, much lower down payments? Or is this still just a reality I have to deal with if I want to buy in as a partner someday? Like I I either have to accumulate a sizable down payment or I got to try to start getting a, some slice as early as I can so that I can get through the initial five years, pay that piece off and then use the free cash flow from that to buy the next one and, and kind of snowball it from there.
2: Yeah, I think um what's a good way to answer that? We talked about those different tools in the tool chest and you're, you're spot on and sort of thinking through the, the different things. That I can mean, can I,
1: can I get deals with no down payment?
2: It's pretty hard to do. And, you know, there's a trade off there. So one is one concept is eventually there's tools in the tool chest and it's like, OK, we don't have the tools to build this cathedral. Right, it's there's a certain point where it's, and that's why we have that ten thousand cell model. We have a number of things that we can tweak and play around with. That we 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 worked on this one, you know, succession plan for a, a company that had like one point two billion. And we figured out a way, because, you know, we're now tweaking, okay, well, what if we only did 20% down? You know, that fits this. And what if we draw drew the payment out this way? And what if they brought in... And, you know, we start playing around, and it, it kicks out this output, and then this output. And eventually, on this one, we cracked the code on it. And then we had to create a new visual to say, alert, we cracked the code on it. But if your growth is too slow, and different from what we modeled... We just played around with the modeling and it's going to go squirrely this way and it's going to run off the rails. Matter of fact, if you grow beyond this rate and you grow too quickly, suddenly it has these implications. So it's one of those things where good news, guys, is we played around enough that we have something that looks like it'll work to keep you independent. But the bad news is, is if you're outside of this zone, you're going to have a problem. And sometimes the reality is, is just... The toolkit isn't right to build the c- cathedral, or the mail truck has gotten too far away from the dog. The dog's just not going to catch it. So you know that that's a reality. The other thing too that I want to pull on is you know there's a certain point too where it's like oh gee I want to make it work. Gee I want to make it work. Okay, no down payment. I'm going to take on the loans, all that stuff. I mean, you also want to make sure that the next gen has skin in the game. You know. We can get far enough away that we forget that we all left the the nice warm confines of a company and started our companies from scratch and had to eat top ramen and and make really hard decisions and just invest our blood, sweat, and tears, our entire psyche into nurturing this thing into what it is today. And there is a psychological component to that that is important for a shareholder. And if shares are gifted, if shares are you know provided to the next gen in a way that there's not much skin in the game, there's some risks and potentially some profound risks associated with that. So you know again, lots of different components that go into this decision. But I don't think the solution sh- set should be, gee, if we can get it down to a zero down payment, you know, let's go do that. There's going to be some trade offs for that decision as well.
1: Is there kind of a threshold of just how low it realistically goes? Like, is 25 to 30 as low as it really goes, or? Are there banks at least that'll do fifteen or twenty percent? Like, what are realistic expectations for people?
2: Well, I was less focused on the banks in that component. I'm more focused on the um, kind of seller on, finance terms on the seller. And, and you know, granted, uh, you know, people still. That's the nice thing about loans is, <laughs> guess what? It's not just kicking you know the door jam and saying, "Gee, I, I can't make your payment this month." You now have you know your. Depending on how this is structured, and that's another complicated component, are the buyers on the hook for this or the sellers? Is the company, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of components that go into that. But, and, and oh, by the way, there's also personal loans and there's HELOCs and different things that people can leverage to, to, to buy these, to buy into the firms. But uh, yeah, they're... So there's different components to who will lend the money and what that looks like. And then the, the trade-off to you for uh, skin in the game for those principles to feel confident that this person is is going to walk through walls to make sure this this company succeeds.
1: So the last thing I just wanted to touch on briefly before we wrap up is I, I know you, you know, the third piece of what you do, you said, is, is investment banking, which you know, is basically about kind of trying to facilitate matches between either firms that want to sell and you help them to find a buyer or firms that want to buy and you help them to find someone who's selling and then and then assist in kind of setting terms and brokering a deal. So you see a lot of trends of what's happening in the space, just doing that over time and seeing what buyers are coming to the table and what sellers are coming to the table. And and so I'm curious from your end, like what do you see as the, the trends right now in the industry and in, in buyers and sellers and the valuations that they're agreeing to?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, so M&A is very active in this industry. 2017 was the fourth successive record year of M&A activity. Um, And this is something I've been tracking for 16 years. And I had three years of data at at Schwab before, you know, when I started doing it. So we are at all-time record levels of of M&A activity. It was interesting cuz 2017 actually had a really weak second half of the year for a variety of reasons, but we just came out with the Q1 numbers for 2018 and and they were, you know, very robust. It was the biggest quarter that I've ever seen um on record. So the M&A activity is strong and I expect it will continue to be strong for years to come. There's a number of, you know, just slow structural changes to the industry that are going to drive mergers and acquisitions to come for years. I, you know, I just the thought I concluded our last, you know, deal book on REAM and A deal book was that it's a seller's market and it's a buyer's market. So what do I mean by that?
1: Say, that how does that work?
2: <laughs> yeah, how does that work? How does that work? It's an interesting so on the seller side, you know, we're seeing valuations that are at, you know, solid levels. They're off the all-time highs. But they're getting pretty close to them, and you know I can shout more about that as appropriate. But the the valuations are high, the deal structures are attractive. So the deal structure we just talked through with succession plan, it's going to be more attractive if an REA is buying you. It's going to be even more attractive if you know a deep-pocketed multi-billion-dollar firm or you know a consolidator is, is acquiring you. So valuations are good, deal structures are attractive. The buyers are pretty darn attractive too. They have capital, they have smart teams, they have um, strong value propositions. Very few of them are sort of fly by knife for lack of a better word, that you know, we saw quite a bit of in 10 years ago. So those are all attractive attributes for sellers. On the buyer side, it's actually a really good market too. The openness and interest of REAs In having discussions and doing deals is the highest I've ever seen. So, advisors in today's environment, and it's not just for succession planning, they are taking calls from buyers. They are open to doing transactions and giving up degrees of control to gain benefits as well. Unlike what I saw, you know, four years, eight years, 16 years, there's been a a shift. Within the the REA community, in terms of their interest and openness to uh, to partnering up or doing some sort of transaction, so yeah, I, I honestly believe it's both a, a seller and a buyer market.
1: And to what do you attribute that? Is is that like the infamous you know advisor retirement wave finally coming to fruition? Is that like? sellers looking and saying, hey I'm really concerned about robo advisors and fee compression all this stuff and i'm I'm afraid valuations are going to go down so I'm getting out while the goings good. what do you see driving this kind of rising tide of seller activity?
2: there's a number of things that are are driving it but a, a core component is is scale and scale can solve a lot of problems right now you know your advisor you just ticked on a couple of them you know folks are sitting there going robo advisor like What's going to happen with this? You know, what should I be doing? Is this going to affect my business and take my clients? Is this going to push down my fees? You know, do I need to have my own robo advisor piece insi- inside? You know, we have companies like Target <laughs> that are being hacked. I don't know the budget that Target yeah. spends on cybersecurity. I'm guessing it's pretty darn high. You know, we have these fortune 100 fortune 50 firms that are being hacked and granted, a lot of the advisors are they have ninja custodians that are doing a lot of great things to keep them from being hacked but it's still something that cannot help but wake people up in the middle of the night you know the compliance headaches the administrative stuff running the business, the competitive landscape. Gee, you know, 15 years ago, you'd throw down a business card and describe what REA is and unconflicted and open architecture and fiduciary, and and you'd immediately have a new client. Well, guess what? Now they're like, well, that's kind of what Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley say. Are you guys any different? It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, yes, we are different, but you don't sound so different anymore. So the competitive landscape is shifting. So... You know, what we're seeing now is advisors back to that scale equation. You know, I can keep running my 200 million, 600 million, billion dollar firm as is, or I can sell to a firm that's 20, 50, 100 times the size of me. And they have a full time person thinking through robo and cybersecurity and every other technology thing that's coming down the like mobile, whatever else, you know, they have a full-time person worrying about all the compliance headaches and all the stuff that people hate. So, and Oh, by the way, you are now part of a multi-billion dollar organization That can help you with marketing, can help you with human capital, um, how to manage your employees. You have trust capabilities that are in-house or CPA, you have a broader set of capabilities. You know, just the value proposition that you have is, is better and better. So it's not just a business decision. Business is key. It's scale and it's a business decision. It's also a personal and professional decision. We have folks that are in their 60s and 70s, but we have folks that are in their 50s, that are saying, you know what? Life is short. And do I want to deal with some of this day-to-day garbage? And if I hook my caboose to that train, a lot of this day-to-day garbage is going to come off my plate. So those are some of the key elements that that are um, creating this listening and transactional environment.
1: So from your end, just as the expert that's followed this for, for the years, like, do you think there's risks that uh, advisory firm valuations are coming in or are they... Going to stay strong where they are, or do you do you think them? Do you see them getting even better from here? Like, what's what's your outlook?
2: Yeah, a a couple things. I think um, one of there there are some risks, right? Anecdotally, it's becoming a more of a trend. It's becoming more common. Advisors are contacting us saying, "Okay, you know what? We're nine years into a a bull market, and I lived through two thousand eight, and I I remember reading what happened evaluations." And I don't want to time the market to sell, but I surely do not want to have an unexpected delay of two years or more, maybe longer, if a 2008 hits and I'm suddenly on the sidelines. That's not part of my plan. That disrupts my plan. So some advisors are are looking at that. I think another component to consider is there's a number of buyers in the marketplace, and a lot of them are very experienced and you know it's total hooey some people who are like oh seller market there's 50 buyers per seller i mean it's garbage on a couple different levels you get into qualified buyers you get into all these different things and that ratio of sellers versus buyers has almost zero impact on what valuation is these are sophisticated buyers that are not buying tulips in yeah. 1800 or whatever the year was you know these are sophisticated people that are crunching cash flows and they're thinking through the equation but instead my my point is If we saw a doubling or a tripling of the number of of sellers in a given year, which I think is possible and might even be likely over the course of the next five years. If we saw that, the buyers in the marketplace could not actually absorb them. I don't think there's enough hours in the day. I don't think there's enough smart people that are buying firms that could actually just take on that deluge.
1: Is it because they don't have the capital or just because they don't have the bandwidth to just bandwidth, do all the work it takes to merge and assimilate that many firms
2: bandwidth absolutely it's not the capital a lot of good capital out there and you know I talked to you know Carlisle Bain capital you you pick any throw a dart at the 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 bluest of the blue chip private equity or all the boutiques I mean there's a we had a, I was honored to listen to um, the CEO of Carlisle speak and you know he's talking about private equity being at an all-time high, which many of us know anyway. So there's no shortage of private equity that wants in this space. There's no shortage of capital, you know, for these acquirers we can tick through some of the the parties out there and the recent capital raises. Instead it's it is the bandwidth and it's it's multifold. You you touched on the the integration side, which is no small feat, right? And fortunately, these, these teams are getting better and better. We have more, you know. We sold, we've represented, um, we worked on three transactions in Q1. Two were sellers, and one was a merger. And those two sellers are probably out of the last three sellers that we've The last five sellers that we've represented, three of them. One of their criteria is we only want to sell to a buyer that's done. I think one said two, one said five, and one said six deals already. They only wanted to talk to folks that had already done deals because they know that there's bumps and bruises and a learning curve that you ramp up on. So, part of it is, is to absorb these firms, I think it'd be overwhelming. But even to get deals done, I mean, it just takes a lot of time and energy and care and feeding. It's an emotional decision as well as um, a technical and economic decision. So, I think just the number of bodies that are able to negotiate these transactions and get them done would be overwhelmed. Now, if we had that scenario, where we had two or three times the number of transactions, valuations would then be impacted. You know, they would get pushed down, deals wouldn't be getting done. And I think that, that could have, you know, an impact on valuations and other things. So as we come
1: to the end here, I'm, I'm just curious with all this stuff going on in the space and, you know, your, your team has grown over time, like what comes next for Devoe and company from here? Aside from launching your uh, capital services line? like What uh, what else is, comes next for you guys?
2: A lot of it is we just... We love what we're doing. And I feel like we're doing a great job. We take the nerdiness that we use on everything that we do. And we even apply it to client engagement. So we, we run CPS or MPS scores, whatever you want to call them. Radians on every single thing. And we are off the charts. People love our work. And when we get anything below, you know, a seven, I'm picking up the phone and calling too. And it's uh-huh. funny, as soon as I decided... Yeah, how do we get our score up? Yep. <laughs> yeah. And literally, or or it's like, hey, what went wrong? Like, let's understand it. And and those happen rarely. I mean, the funny thing is, is I decided, hey, maybe we should start marketing our CPS scores. And literally the next day we we got, I think it was a six. And I called up the guy and it was funny too. And well, it's another story, but he's he's like, Yeah, it took a while to get everything done. I'm like, Oh wow, okay, well what can we do better? And he's like, Well, I mean, it was my fault it took a while. And it was like, why did you dig us through <laughs> that? Like I don't get it. My <laughs> but but conversely, it's kind of nice, you know, it almost it like gives you this energy to focus more. So in either case, you know, it's neat what we're doing. We are, you started the conversation by saying, you know, these are some of the most important Business decisions people will ever make in their lives. And, you know, that is what gets me and Tim Coaches and Vic Escamado and Francie Miltenberger and, and Tim Forrest up every day. We get fired up on the work that, that we're doing. It's just, it's important, it's critical. And by the way, it's kind of funny too when people are like, hey, it's the most important business decision in my career. I should do it myself, <laughs> you know it 's like what you counsel your clients every day to use an advisor with such important decisions, so I, I think part of it is you know honestly, just doing what we do we we naturally keep expanding i 'm wondering if there's new things we can expand into because we do all the consulting I want to do now i don 't think we want to get into operations or technology we don't want to get more into legal or tax so i 'd say you know i don 't necessarily see new places we're going to go, we're just going to keep doing it better and probably, you know, keep growing the team. You know, we're, we're growing at a pretty good clip and, and we just hired a new person three months ago, but I'm ready to hire someone again. So if you're really good at, at consulting for REAs, give me a call.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll make sure we've got links out to you in the show notes as well. If anyone's excited to go into the RA valuation consulting business. So this is, uh, episode 72. So if you go to kitsus.com slash 72, uh, you can take a look at the the show notes and uh, and get contact information for Dave. So, Dave, as as we wrap up, you know, this is a a show about success, and and one of the things that we always observe on the podcast is just success means different things to different people. It, it's kind of a loaded word that we all, all come out in our own way. And so, you know, as someone who's built a successful business of your own, doing this for advisors as well as watching advisors build their businesses. I'm curious just for you at a, uh, at a personal level, like how do you define success for yourself?
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's funny. We, we sometimes joke that, that we need to do the consulting for ourselves that we do for others, you know, probably a common reframe. I think success on a couple different levels. For me, happy clients has always been paramount, you know, last 16 years, but clearly last six running my own company. And that's, that's, that's been critical I've now enlarged that, and I'll be honest, it was it, it's been a growth experience to me to make the environment of Devone Company, the people that are doing all this work, to be, you know, as or, or quite frankly, as or even more important than the clients. And I I am doing more and more strategic work on Devone Company, and I am buying into that concept that, you know, if your people come first in many regards. And, you know, they're happy, they have the tools, they're, you know, incented in the right way, they're just going to create more work, which only makes the client experience even better. So I think a growth opportunity for me has been to move beyond just the, you know, the client, the client, the client, making that great. And instead making, you know, doing my best to create a really good uh, work environment for everyone who's part of the gang.
1: Mm, very cool. Just probably an interesting, just parallel experience since that's this, the same journey that occurs in the advisor world, right? Like we try to serve our clients and make sure we have happy clients. And then as the business grows, uh, I know a lot of advice where the, the focus starts to shift and, and it's not that like clients take up a, a backseat or anything, but that focusing on how you're building your own team takes on kind of a renewed focus as the business just literally grows beyond you. And then, that becomes part of what you're doing as a business owner.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so important. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not only 75% of the expense structure, right? The, the employees and the assets that come in, but it's such a key differentiator and the ability to have, you know, a team that is excited, engaged, comes into work, you know, walks through walls, not just to, to help client achieve their success, but help the business itself continue to excel is just a key differentiator in the marketplace. And, and uh, it's not easy to do, but it's so critically important to do. Well,
1: very cool. Well, thank you for joining us and just and sharing that story and experience on, uh, on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Oh, my pleasure. I think it's a great thing you're doing, and I'm, I'm very honored to be part of this. So thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor?